episode 100, Physician Assistants, Contracts, Race, and Staff. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trostler, and today we have Dr. Jonathan Ledette's perspective. Join 2017 and 2018 Podcast Awards-nominated host as we get a behind-the-curtain look at all types of doctors and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. One hundred episodes, one hundred episodes, and I'm still going strong. This is crazy. What a ride it's been. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. I mean, we've had a spotlight series on women, African American doctors, who actually ended up being lots of women too, acupuncture docs. Uh, we've had every profession I can think of. Maybe not audiology. Still want to get one of those. They're difficult to find, apparently. But you know, I can see why a lot of podcasts stop around twenty-five to thirty. It's a lot of work. It takes time, finding guests, no replies, following up with people you really, really want to get on the show, matching up schedules. It's been really fun. Learned a lot so far. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you have too. I hope you enjoy some of the marketing that we've talked about on each episode. We've had certain shows just on that. We did have a, a, like a video social media spotlight series a while back. And today... We've got, for the first time, a repeat guest. So episode one, and now episode 100. Two milestones with one of my best friends, Dr. Jonathan Ledette. We are going to talk about a whole lot of things, but before we do that, I want to share with you a couple of the reviews, testimonies, if you will, of things that I've heard. Here's one. Uh, the fact that you're trying to find those little nuggets, man, I, I, I love it. I dig it, and I'll support it for whatever you need from me. I think you're on a mission. I support that mission. The more we can have intelligent, emotional, and intellectual sharing in, in this profession, the better. That was Tristan. David McCarrion said, If everybody in the chiropractic profession had, and I'm not blowing smoke, had your mindset, your critical thinking mindset, we would not be in trouble. We would be seeing 30% of the population right now. So, so press on what you're doing. Two people made the same similar kind of comment. Nathan Cashin. And Olivier Roy, it's helped rejuvenate me and restarting my own podcast again. And then Roy said, That felt like a therapy, basically, for me, asking those questions. All those, like, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? How can you make it better? So it was good for me to do it also. Putting this together, it's such a good idea. I, I, I think you inspired me to do something like that on my side, you know? Uh, Heather Dennison said, I think you do a great job and you're the only person I know who asks about personal life and it's so charming for people to let people want to know about that. So I think that piece of it is great. Uh, CT said, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're a great uh, host, a great interviewer. And uh, I, I'm really impressed because the way you're able to weave those questions and also kind of follow up with what I was talking about, I, I thought it, it was really smooth. So I really appreciate that. Uh, G Mark strong really liked him. He did the uh, laser interview he actually bundled our interview together with a package. So if you bought a laser, you'd actually get a USB drive with a bunch of different things, including that interview. So that's really cool. Thank you so much for this podcast. You're doing a great job bringing together different professions and conversation. Uh, Jane Anderson from Australia was like, hey, technology fails. I'm glad we could do this again. That's only happened two or three times ever. So I really like how you're expanding the uh the spectrum of doctors, you know, uh, I know you had a pharmacist on, other chiro fellow chiropractors. I know you have an optometrist that's going to be on. So I'm excited. I'm a fan. I, I look forward to subscribing to doc a doctor's perspective uh, podcast. Someone said, you're doing an intellectual NPR style learning about other doctors podcasts. And I like that you go long. 
You're great at conversation. So grateful you're doing this and helping spread the word. Let's keep building our networks and get to know each other. Okay. So those are some of the comments. Really appreciate that, obviously. And if it's your first time listening, there you go. Some social proof. And I do want to play one more from a guy. He's going to be interviewed a couple of weeks from now. PJ. He's a big fan, but he's also got a really cool story. So, you know, interviewed him and here's what he had to say. Man, uh, you are doing great work. I've, I've been listening to your, your work. Man, I mean, I admire you doing what you're doing, building the brand you're doing, reaching, bringing people together, educating us. Although chiropractic is a theme, but you are, you're obviously including marketers and influencers, and, which I really love in the medical space. I just listened to your Ben Baker interview, the marketing branding personality guy. Um, I mean, I, I've been scribbling notes, getting smarter and smarter about what he had to say and agreeing with mostly what he said, a lot of it, um, with a couple caveats from our business experience. But I, I don't know. I, I admire what you're doing. I, and I'm not ever going to try to do what you're doing. But as you know, I've started a podcast which is designed to help knee patients and so I'm, I'm taking a card from you a little bit uh, in what you're doing with this little tiny world of knee surgery recovery. And anyway, I just, I li- I like, I just like what you're doing, I guess. I tell you what, when we included your little awesome promo, by the way, super awesome, it makes my podcast feel so much bigger because you're there. But there it is at the, at the button at the end of an interview and it's boom, there you are. I'm just in just yeah, and it it's got like, whoa, these guys are kind of kind of for real kind of kind of thing. So it helps me, believe it or not, having you as a an advertiser and it's such a, an appropriate and, and well connected kind of thing. All right, so back to the episode one hundred. What are you gonna look at today? We're gonna have negotiation tips, office managers, training staff, hiring staff, what are you looking for? Should you hire a, a physician's assistant? What are some of the drawbacks, the perks? What about compensation, training? Do you want somebody fresh out of school, not out of school? You know, has he had any experiences being an African-American where there's been some confusion, some hurt feelings? Uh, we even mentioned Uncle Tom. And what, what is that? What does that have to do with anything? And uh, what can you do about it? If you were curious, about 55% of the guests have been male, 45% female, 80% white, 13% black. Only 3% Hispanic and 5% Asian. So that's not that great right there. Looks like I might need to try to diversify a little bit more in that area. And international, about 12%. So that's kind of the breakdown. Hope you stayed with us. First part of the interview, we we cut a a couple little jokes here and there. And then we get right into it, okay? So thank you so much for paying attention. Thank you for being a part of the program. I love y'all. Thank you for the reviews. Share it. Review us on iTunes and Stitcher, wherever it is. Let me know doctorsperspective.net slash 100. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China and Tulsa, we got a great doctor on the show today. He's board certified, mole surgeon, fellowship trained. This guy's done it all. Been at two different hospitals. Second time guest on the podcast, episode one and episode 100, The Milestone. Please welcome back to the show, Dr. Jonathan Ledette. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. I'm pumped, pumped, pumped. Hey, man, do you know what? There's a couple good things. One, we just hit 100th episode. That's a good thing. All right. Trump and the president of China, they just shook hands and said, all right, trade war is over. That's pretty good, right? That's re- I think that's really good for our country. Now, two bad things happened. 
One, President George Bush I passed away. And the other bad thing is 51 whales off the coast of New Zealand washed up on shore and passed away. Now, John, I got to ask you, which one is worse? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think this goes back to, you know, 94 years old, man. That's a that's a heck of a life. So, you know, obviously uh, someone who was president of our country, who was probably the last president to get things done in a bipartisan manner, um, you know, because I think it a little bit went off the rails when President Clinton was happy. Anyway, I think you have to mourn the loss of, of a great human being every time you can. Indeed, indeed. For those animal lovers, that's still both tragic. Yeah, it's still tragic. Obviously, I think the beaching, you know, uh, the they don't know what whales, happened. Well, they never do. I mean, the question is, like, there was a whale found just the other day with what seventeen pounds of plastic in it or something like that. You know. Anyway, I think humanity's effects on uh, on the planet are, um, or you know, are immense. But that's a that's a, a topic for a different day. John, what is your uh, what's your love for this? Um fake climate change. I hear you're a big supporter of uh, just polluting the world. I, th- I heard that's what you like to do. <laughs> <laughs> so fake climate change. huh? So, you know, people who think climate change is fake, I guess you just think science is fake as well. So, you know, I think uh, humanity's obviously had an effect on our planet. I think that, you know, obviously the world goes through hot and cold spells. The science can't dispute that. However, it's never warm this fast, This you know, in such a short period of time. That might be the key. As fast. And who knows what'll happen. Anyway, I'm messing with you, man. Uh, let's get, <laughs> let's go to the real reason why you're on the show. So you've, you've worked in one hospital, learned some things about contracts, dealing with staff, a manager that's appointed upon you. You've had physician's assistants and you've had a corporate change. So, you know, you all of a sudden, now your pocketbook has changed a little bit as well. And you're like, wait, I mean, we had a contract, but now that's changing. So a lot, a lot's been going on in two years, man. Yeah, you know, changing hospital systems was not an easy thing. Uh, I did like the town I was in. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you're, you have to be happy in the job you're at. And your family, uh, you know, most importantly, has to be happy. Uh, my wife wanted something that was a little more metropolitan. I did really like Jonesboro, the administration. You know, there were several changes. They started not honoring contracts and et cetera, trying to mess with people and things like that. So, you know, I think they were shocked when I left because they, they always said, hey, you're getting paid well here. And, you know, the question I always had for them was that they think I was getting paid well because I was there. They think I was getting paid well because I was the one doing the work and putting in the effort. You know what I mean? Yeah. Would you say even in among derms, you're probably in the top – five percent of derms at this point in like production uh i don't know about top five percent i know there's some um some people it's hard to quantify i think in system jobs i'm definitely in the top five percent um but there's some private practice individuals who work very hard and you know they're super efficient um and you're not so, even doing you know, cosmetics so i'm not doing any cosmetics to oranges because there's a lot of derms that like they want to do botox they're doing all these like facial things that's just like profit like crazy because it's all cash and you're kind of like, nah, man, I'm doing surgeries for cancer removals and all that type of stuff. Well, you know, I think that um, one of the things as we get you know, further into our training and our practices and whatnot, I think you learn that. I think it's personally best just to stick to the things that you are great at, not good at, the things you are great at and the things that you are only good or adequate at. You let somebody else do them. 
you know, there are certain uh, flaps such as uh, what's mm. there's a flap called a paramedian forehead where you take someone's forehead and put it down in their nose. And I mean, I can do that flap. I have the technical ability to do it. But, you know, my plastic surgery colleagues and uh, ear, nose and throat um, or I guess it's it's actually E-E-N-T. So I ear, nose and throat. They do them more frequently. So I think it stands to reason that they do them better. And I have no problem sending it to them. <laughs> Because we want the patient to get a, 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 the best outcome. That's what it's really about. All right. So I was I wanted to ask you about staff and things like that first, but you kind of mentioned it already. You've had to train a couple PAs, and sometimes it seems like they might go out of their wheelhouse. What's going on with that? What can we? How can we manage a PA and train a PA so that they're doing the physician's assistant, so that they're doing what I want? Because I'm the doctor that signs their notes. What can we learn? What have you learned well, so far? Well, uh, the biggest thing I learned is, you know, it it matters when you get the person, you know, if you get them fresh out of school or you get them fresh from a different job. You know, when I was seeking out my first physician assistant, I purposely targeted someone that had no dermatology experience because that way I was able to train them, you know, like the way I, I basically wanted them to be trained. Um, so we would talk about things and discuss things Um and that way, I know, you know, training even from specialist to specialist may be different, different training programs, training in different eras. You know, my partner is uh, 66. So, you know, he's literally old enough to be my father and he was trained in a different era. So sometimes when we look at problems, uh, we approach them a little differently. Uh, and sometimes the reasonings are the, the reason we do those things are different. So I think with the physician assistants, it really just matters when you get them. And, you know, that you kind of set the tone with them. Um, the, my current situation is a little bit unique. I came in. They were already here. They inherited me. I inherited them. I didn't really have much say. Now, I've changed a little bit of how they practice, but uh, I didn't have a lot of say in that. Hmm. So is that a, a for people who are in your same position where they're like, maybe I'm happy with certain aspects of them, but I want to train them in other areas. Is there a way to have like a, a sit down or like a like, we're coming in on a Saturday. I need to retrain you on a few things. I really don't like how you're doing this. I love this, this and this. But like we got to get this situated. Is that a possibility in um, that system? Oh, it certainly is. I mean, with our current uh, mid-level providers, advanced practice providers, excuse me, that's the more uh, PC term. Uh, nowadays, because, you know, I think most of them don't like being referred to as mid-level. So advanced practice providers with them, uh, meet with them every Thursday, our current ones every Thursday, and we pick a topic and, you know, we spend 20 minutes uh, of me going over it and then, you know, 15 minutes of questions. So when we do just one topic at a time, so that way we can really get in depth on a topic rather than trying to cover multiple topics. Um, I try not to do it on the weekends because, you know, people's family time is valuable. I mean, that's, you know, the work-life balance is key. Um, you, you know, you mentioned, I think in any of these jobs, it's going to be what you make it, but also what is the person willing to give you? You know, um, I like to be, I always tell them I like to be great. I try uh, to not use negative language whenever I speak with them. Like, I, I don't say, I don't like how you do this. I'd say, hey, I think we have some chan uh, a chance to improve this or we can enhance the way we do this and this is why <laughs> do you have to hammer uh notes like look if you don't document correctly we don't get paid correctly if you don't document you can get in trouble and then ultimately i gotta get in trouble because you didn't do your job correctly and i'm the responsible for signing off on all your charts 
I, yes, I think that is uh, very important. I think in any specialty, uh, whether it be dermatology, rheumatology, any specialty, any really any discipline of medicine, you know, if you're if you're a chiropractor, so if you have a chiropractor chiropractic associate, even though that person is a doctor, you know, you want to make sure that you guys are doing things in a similar vein, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that way your patients can get the best experience possible. So, you know, documentation is important. You should document so that you can bill appropriately. That keeps you out of hot water with uh, patients, keeps you with administration, with government. You know, nobody wants really to get audited. But if you do get audited, you know, like, you don't. it's not something you want to live in fear. If you say, hey, if I get audited, these charts can stand on their own. Everything's done. The, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. They're not going to find anything. When you're working in a big hospital, because normally I think, you know, there's a lot of private practice, but there's a lot of, you know, hospital doctors out there. And sometimes you're going to clash. Staff members not going to be very good. They're always messing up the schedule. They undermine you. They undercut you. They talk about you behind your back. Or, you know, I mean, there's, there's lots of like, you know, negative things that can happen with staff and physician's assistants and things. Are you able as the doctor to like discipline them or do anything like in that fashion? Or does it have to go to some kind of like appointed manager and, and all that type of stuff? Like, well, I think the best I think the best offices, both in system jobs and in uh, in private practice, uh, you want to be in lockstep with your manager. So, you know, you don't want to I, I personally think, you know, obviously, I think there's some generational uh, differences, but I don't ever want to go to someone and say, well, I'm disciplining you because of this, because really, you know, we're not that's not our our role. If we're unhappy with something, I like to have that all documented with the manager what do we talk about? Has it been an issue before? And then we talk about corrective action. I try not. Uh, I try not to not confront people directly. I also don't ever re- refer to people as staff. You know, I try to maintain uh, a positive vibe. I called them my team. I said, look, you know, I address emails. If I address it to the whole department, I say team. If I address it to Anytime I'm addressing more than one person, I say, team, I need you to do X, Y, and Z, or we fell short on X, Y, and Z. How can we approve this? Also, I think empowering them, and there were some issues uh, at this office, and we try to correct them, and that started with getting on the same page with the manager, letting the manager or the supervisor, whoever you're working with, know what your expectations are and how you expect the office to be run. Right, because it's got to be kind of tough because you're the medical profession. It's so interesting. You got to have nurses, you need, you know, a team, but in ultimately, in a sense, it's all based on what the doctor does. It's my charges that keep this hospital afloat or my clinic afloat. Like, you know, a nurse is great, but but a nurse really can't bill. uh, They can't bill, but they have a profound, uh, anyone on your team has a profound effect on how the patient perceives your office. You know, I get compliments daily, which I'm very proud of. And they say, oh, everybody's been so nice to me. You know, things were organized and people checked on me and they called me to make sure I didn't have any pain or bleeding or anything like that. So those are all good things. So I think the best offices, you know, you include everyone in the process. And I always tell my team, you know, you see them before me and you see them after me. So really, the better experience they have with you, the better their overall visit is going to be. Yep. Because they're not going to complain to you. Like if you were short with them or made a joke that they didn't like, they're not going to really tell you because like you're working on their face typically, sure. you know, or wherever they're, sure. you know, they're going to go up to the front manager and, and check out and be like, oh, <laughs> oh, and they start venting. And you may or may not ever hear about sure. that yeah. until it's too late. So is there a way to counteract that? 
a way to counteract uh, bad patient experience. Well, you know, some of it's also going to be personality driven. In, mm-hmm. in my um, office, I'm, I have a rule with, except with rare exception, I don't operate on people without meeting them first, having a consultation with them, so we can discuss, you know, how the procedure is going to go. They can meet me. They can get a sense of my personality. So that way they can decide if they like me or not, you know, because they, you know, I think the era of paternalistic medicine in any discipline is over. Patients are a lot more educated now. You know, they research you. Uh, you know, they say, oh, I saw you trained with so-and-so and tell me how this went and that went. And they want to know, have you, you know, have you had any problems at any of your stops? Have you, uh, have you done this procedure before? You know, what's the success rate? All those things. So, you know, and I think a consult visit for me helps alleviate some of those things so that way when they come in, they're prepared and they have a good experience, a great experience. Let's talk about real quick, back to the physician's assistants. You're in a busy office, you know, in a hospital setting, you kind of get capped on like your, mm, most places it seems like you get a fee for supervising a, a PA sure. and then it's capped. But like in a private practice, sky's the limit. Like you just, whatever you want to, you know, percentage, they get a flat salary. Is it really worth either quote the headache or be the profitability to hire a PA versus just say another doctor? Well, I think that's more of an admin question uh, for me. You know, I think patients want to see physicians um, by and large. Most of the time they want to see uh, a physician. So is it more profitable to hire? I think administratively, they probably retain more on the on the advanced practice providers because, you know, they get paid less than us. Right. They mm-hmm. so they cost less, their malpractice is less and all these things. Now, from a, a standpoint of managing them, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? I think that goes to the relationship that you have. I think if you have someone um, who you've you've invested in and you've trained, it can be a real asset to the office. Uh, I think this I mean, and I, I really think that starts at any level in your office, thinking the front desk, the manager, the, you know, the, uh, the nurses, whomever, but specifically with advanced practice providers, they could be a real asset, but if they are not basically on board or they don't want to do things kind of the way you want them, if there's some friction between the two of you, then, then that could be a real detriment uh, to the office, I believe. You know, I was listening to a guy who, uh, he trains chiropractors to sort of educate doc- medical doctors better on like what we do. Cause any given day, 30% of their pain, their uh, patients are like back pain, musculoskeletal stuff. And that's obviously what we want to see. Right. And so some like 80% will, ex- the patient will be like, yeah, I'll go see a chiropractor. And they'll be like, okay, cool. That's fine. But only 11% will actually actively refer to, they won't like, ah, you should never go. So mo- that that's a change. That's good. But they're like, only 11% actually give referrals to the chiropractor. It's like, so that spread is where, you know, we can make the biggest impact on society. And um, one of the things that, some of the jobs that I've noticed for, for chiropractic in the the hospital orthopedic clinic setting is the chiro is doing most of the orthos exams because the orthos like, look, maybe one out of five is a surgery candidate and it kind of wasted my time. So go see Dr. Justin. He'll do the exam. He knows exactly what I need for a surgical consult. And if they don't meet these criteria, then you can take them. The PT in the office can take them. And then, you know, like I said, now, all my day, if I have 20 available appointments, they're all actual surgical candidates, and I can actually treat more patients that need to be seen throughout the year. And I was like, wow, that's that's kind of cool. And it just kind of made me think of like the PA situation where you might trust them with certain things, but once you once you train them to say, hey, look, if you see this, you send them to me immediately. Like, you don't be doing surgery. You know, you might be able to remove this thing, but if it's on the face, don't touch it. You send it to me because... 
I'm the one who's better at it. I think that is uh, a function of you working with them every day and training them and you, you guys kind of having a shared vision of what the patient experience uh, should be in your office. Okay. All right. What about contract negotiations? How much lead, do you have to kind of like know what you're worth to really have a foot to stand on or do you have to just take what they offer because, I mean, they just hire somebody else who'll take it? You know, I think, what, what's your thoughts? I think if each situation is different. You know, I think if you want to be in uh, downtown Dallas, if you want to be in, uh, you know, Miami, something like that, if you if you if there's an area that's highly desirable, it is basically going to depend on how bad they want you. I think all, there's room for negotiation in most of those, unless it's like, hey, you want to go to Austin, Texas, and Austin is a hotbed for, you know, dermatology, let's say, because uh, it is, then you will have less power to negotiate. But I think obviously in anything, Justin, as you know, it's you need to know what you're worth, what you're uh, bringing to the table. And I don't think that you can actually get a sense of that until after you've worked somewhere. You know, the average physician uh, is on their second job within five years. And I think the reason, you know, is because the first job, sometimes you don't know what you're worth. And then sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes you have a situation that's great and you don't appreciate how great it is. Right. I have a friend. She's now in private practice. She had this job in, uh, in Kansas and she liked it. But she didn't love it. You know, she she was like, ah, it's a it's a it's a good job. It's not a great job because, you know, they asked her to do like some administrative things and she didn't like that. She didn't think it was worth her time. And then she left and she joined a group of friends and they thought it was going to be like this great bonding thing where you have all these, you know, these like minded individuals. And it turned out not to be like that because two of them owned the practice and two of them were, quote, employees. They're, I mean, they, they had their own practice, but they had to pay in. Uh, to the other people who had the staffing, who had the building, the you know they had to pay yeah you got absorbent feet throw your weight right so yeah. they had to pay uh, a percentage of collections and whatnot and so she went from one situation to the next and she actually made much less in her quote private practice uh, oof yeah situation because she didn't know how good she had it back at her other gig you know she just didn't realize all of the things that were available for her you know they had a like for deferred income, they had a whole bunch of different things that you, you have to consider. You know, private practice is great, not to ramble on. Private practice is great, I think, um, but I also think system jobs can be, can be great as well if you find the right situation for you. So all of, this thing, all of these things are situational. Right, because you got overhead, mm-hmm. and the more money you make, the way it usually works is your overhead will still increase because now you got to hire another nurse, another staff member health benefits, all of a sudden a, a, a 30,000 salary ends up being like 45, Sure, you know, and so there's, right. there's that level. But in, in the medical field, I mean, you can run, if you're lucky, what, 45%, if you're not so good, 60 to 70% overhead. So you really have to consider like, oh, I brought in, I don't know, a million worth of, of business to this hospital. I only got paid, what, 40 or 50%. I'm going to just start on my own. Well, good luck. Well, now, good luck. You, good luck. You're exactly right with the good luck because I mean, I think people underestimate the value of working in systems. I mean, just for example, when you're negotiating contracts with insurance, if you're a private practice person and you're one individual, or you have yourself and one other person, then you're not going to have much leverage. You know, um, my institution has 400 doctors, so when they negotiate contracts, they negotiate. 
on behalf of 400 physicians and they say, do you as an insurance want access to this many doctors so they can command a higher price? That's so foreign for so many physicians like outside of the, like what you are the rest of the people that listen to this. We don't get an option. Negotiate. Son, you want this or not? Like that's your choice. Like you want $30 for your treatment or not? Because that's all you're going to get. There's no negotiating. I, it's so crazy. But I do think what I think it's I, I, Justin, I really still think it's situational. I think that if you can show someone how much you are actually worth and what you're bringing in and if you know, you know, if you know what you're worth, then basically you can. I think you obviously everybody wants to get paid a million dollars and work two days a week, but that's just not pragmatic. You know, that's not realistic. Right. So you have to say, OK, guys, listen, these are the things I want, like with my current job. Right. So they wanted me to come and be in another building. And they said, OK, we'll build you an office. Just come. Let's get it started. And then and then, we'll, you know, we'll put you here. We'll get everything done. And I said, um, yeah, I um, I would not. You know, I said I told them I said I wasn't willing to take a step backwards. Basically, I said, you know, I'm going to need you to make sure the office is built before I show up. You know, I wanted to make sure. Uh, my team members, you know, I got to hire all of them myself. I had to interview 48 to get six. Wow. You know, so I don't know because it starts with having high standards, right? What were you looking for? Uh, d- uh, I, was, Top two. I was looking for number one, being a strong work ethic. And number two, being a great team player. I mean, some of these interviews, Justin, were comical. I had a young lady walk in, uh, you know, because just by the nature of these medical assistants, LPN jobs, they're, you know, the majority of the applicants are female. So one lady walked in, she sat down, she says, how much does this job pay? And I was like, excuse me, well, how are you? <laughs> like, so, uh, I was like, wow, someone failed their how to interview class, you know? Uh, so I was like, well, this is not going to work well. I said, well, you know, this job will pay a salary commiserate with your experience and what HR thinks you're worth, you know? So yeah. it's just funny, you know, it's like some people just basic things. I had another young lady, you know, she walked in um, and she was this club she was, life. Yeah. You know, she was dressed like she was uh, going out uh, with some friends. You know, it, w- it would have been more befitting for a uh, an application to Hooters uh, and not an application <laughs> to a, a professional medical office. So there was a little and that can go just, both ways. Yeah. The guys can come guys in can looking like yeah, Dude, you exactly. woke out of bed. Like, yeah, come on, man. Exactly. Guys can do it. Too. You're not you can't wear a hoodie. <laughs> you probably shouldn't wear a hoodie unless you're interviewing to be a rapper. You know, uh, I think that if you're interviewing to be a rapper, that might be all right. All right. Team player. I like it. When you're fresh out of school, well, residency, I should say, do you even have an inkling of how busy and how streamlined you can make yourself to guess? Like, I estimate I could see 20 people in a day, but in residency, we can only see eight. But I bet you I could see 20 because we were just twiddling our thumbs half the day. Well, I think it, or we don't have as much red tape. You know, I think but I, you also have to remember residency programs are designed to train people. OK, so it's not going to be this super efficient system because the attending physicians, you know, they have to slow down and they have to make sure like, you know, they're being extra thorough because they are teaching you things even without talking to you, you know, they're in a room. I remember my chairman, you know, he has a Friday afternoon clinic and, you know, he would ask all these questions which seemed to be very mundane. What color is the chair you sit on and blah, blah, blah. And then soon, you know, soon enough, you're like, Oh, he asked the color of the chair because this person 
has an allergy to blue dye from their chair. You know, like it's just, you know, that's why they call um, our professions an art and not a it's it's a it's an art. Right. It's an art to practicing medicine. People don't realize that. Most of the time, it's like you expect, but there's subtle nuance, especially with what you're doing. If you're going to reconstruct somebody's arm or their face, I mean, there's a lot of chance to make somebody really ugly or make them look like they did before they came in. So obviously, in any of these surgeries, you so I always tell people, number one, that there I always let them know that there will be a scar, you know, so you can set the expectation. But really, in truth, you want to make it look like nothing happened. You, yeah. you want to you want to get them a great outcome. Same, same thing in your profession. You want to adjust people, and then you want them to feel as good as they've ever felt. We always do the caveat the first visit. Right. You're probably going to be sore. You're probably going to be sore. So if you feel like you had a flare-up, it's okay. That's normal. Because if you don't tell them, poof, they may not show up the next day, and then they're mad at you and talking negative. And that's no good. Exactly. Nobody wants that. Right. I think sometimes complications with anything happens, and I think you have to set that expectation. Like if you're gonna, If you tell somebody, hey, I think it's going to take – somewhere between eight and 15 visits to get you better, then they understand and they're not going to, you know, basically I had a mentor who told me anything you tell a patient before you do anything is education. Anything you tell them after is an excuse. So let's make sure we keep it together. I like that. So before is education, after is an excuse. Right. That's Even how though it's the exact it. same thing, but that's how patients perceive it. Oh, you're making excuses for why I didn't have a, why, you know, why do I have a scar? You know, I'm like, no, I'm, you know, like when sometimes this happens to me, patients say, well, you told me there wasn't going to be a scar. I said, no, ma'am. No, sir. I said, no, sir. That never came out of my it, mouth. It does not. You know, they tell you never say never. But I'm like, listen, I'm saying that I don't ever say I don't ever tell patients there will not be a scar. I say I, I tell you right up front there will be a scar. And I mean, people come in, you know, they come back in like their three or four month follow up and they go, wow, there's no scar there. You said there was going to be one. I was like, well, there's one, but it just looks good. Which is which was right, right. Well, especially if like you know you're a loud talker. I'm I'm not sure if uh, that's how it is at the office, but I have to assume. <laughs> it's like if you're chatting with your staff, like man, I really gotta get out of here by like five, no later than five ten. My kids uh, are sick. I really gotta get out of here. And you got some patient that overhears that around four forty five. You finish something up, and then the next visit, they're like, ah, it didn't come out quite as good. You're like, I did not rush it. <laughs> and they're gonna think I yeah, did rush. It. You know, you're like uh, it only took five minutes to do your surgery, but it didn't come out quite like we wanted. Right. It's not because I was rushing it. Right, but. right, exactly. So I try to, you, you, you know, we try to have those conversations out of earshot. I and I tell patients, I I wouldn't say I don't say anything about them that I wouldn't tell them to their face. We try to keep them abreast of situations. You know, my wife was sick about a month ago or so, and I canceled a couple of patients because basically I knew I needed to get home to be able to take care of my kids. And I, I kept the patients abreast. We told them up front, Dr. Ledet has a sick, a sick wife. You know, I had my team call them uh, and I said, hey, I, I apologize for rescheduling the surgery. My wife is sick. I got to go. These things happen. Man. That's one thing I do like about you. You don't have this God complex and you care about your family. You want to be a part of your family. And it's not like work is all there is. And, and the patients, I think, understand that if they get told that, like you said, you're, you're letting them know. And I think they respect that. So if you do have to cancel, they're not like, ah, I waited six weeks for this appointment. And now I got to wait another who knows how long to get rescheduled. Right. How do you all handle that? How do you when you're when you're booked out six weeks, eight weeks at a time and you got to reschedule somebody like because of your fault? What do you do? Well, what you do is you do whatever it takes to give that patient the best experience, you know. Like so, so what you do is you try to work them all in over the next week if you can. 
you know, you, you come in a little early, you talk to your team, you got to talk to your team first, right? Because they, they ultimately are the, the people who make a lot of the decisions in the office, you know, because I can only, because I took off work to come see you. I already took the work off. Now I got to take off another day. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, you know, you try to find something that's workable in within that patient schedule. You know, like we've come in early. Like, for example, I'm off the entire last week of December. Right. So what we did to compensate for that, though, because we have a lot of people at the end of the year, people have methane deductibles, et cetera. So we are working three Fridays in a row to try to help offset those days that we will not be performing surgeries. What a pious man to work on a Friday. <laughs> yeah, I don't want people to get upset. I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, so this was one of the things because. So he just works four days a week, y'all. I, I mean, make your schedule. Like chiropractors, <laughs> we work like three or four as well. Oh, Fridays. What? Are you kidding me? Well, I think that's a, uh, I think that it's important to have that family time as well. And my team, we work hard Monday through Thursday. You know, we put in yeah. a lot of hours. So I'd say, we, you know, and that. People can get overtime in your four days a yes, week. Yes, people get overtime regularly in our four days a week. Yes, sir. That says something. It's not like you worked six hours and da 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 da. Exactly. I mean, you don't have it as nice as, as we do with these two and three hour lunch breaks, though. So I mean, yeah, you I know, I, I got can't say, have it all. I'm I'm a, I'm a little jealous of the uh, two and three hour lunch, but you know, if I got if I'm gonna have a lunch break that long, I'd rather just cut the day short. You know, like I, I believe I that you. four tens. You know, I'm, I met with our vice president the other day, and I told him I said, uh, you know, four tens is more efficient than five eights. It just really is. I, I think I think you will burn out. You know, the you you get less burnout doing that because I think that you're able to have a little downtime, and that's important. You can power through that last Thursday or like that last hour of every day mm-hmm. because you know Friday, do a three day work week, I mean three day vacation every week. That's like, it's so refreshing because yeah. like Friday is normally oh, just decompressing. Then you got all day Saturday to just chill. And then Sunday, you can kind of gear back up. I mean, that extra day is huge usually. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I believe it is uh, huge because I mean, also, you know, you could do, you can get things done. You could go to the bank while during normal hours. You don't have to hustle to get what? there. You know, like <laughs> you can take your kid out uh, on Fridays. I take my oldest daughter and we go get a smoothie, you know, and I just. We just hang out, you know, like we go to, it's like $5 smoothies uh, on Smoothie King. So we go, we go to Smoothie King and we hang out and we just talk about what we're going to do that weekend and, you know, ask her how school was this week and who she played with and things like, things that, you know, and she has a little sister. So I think that's important for us to get that time alone. So that way she, you know, it's just her. Indeed, indeed. So one of the things, if you read the title of this episode is called Race. You are a successful African-American, and we kind of probably touched on it the first episode you came on, but probably not that much. I was a little, you know, gun shy with some questions that I'd asked. But, you know, over the last year around this time, we had a, a six-week session, just African-American doctors. Sure. Something I like to ask because, you know, as a white male, well, you know, we don't really have this consideration. Yeah, white privilege, right? It exists. Yeah. I mean, it's there. So it's a, it's a, two, it's a two-fold question. We can cover one or the other. I'll just let you know what they both are. One, I've heard sometimes people get mistaken for the uh, the help or like, oh, are you the nurse? Or, you know, they have those type of experiences of just not, you know, getting that instant respect that they're supposed to have. And so I'm curious if, A, if you've, if you've experienced any of that, how do you deal with it? And is there ways to kind of like remedy it so it doesn't become an issue to start with? <laughs> well, I mean, this virtually happens to me every week. 
Okay, so every week, every week, but it's not, you know, it's, uh, you can only control how you react to things, right? Like, you know, your worldview, my worldview is pretty positive. I think you know that about me. Um, so when someone says, when they ask me, they say, are you the doctor? I say, well, that's what the sign says. And it kind of like diffuses the situation. You know, they <laughs> laugh. Uh, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's it. You know, and like I said, patients are savvy now. They're, you know, usually a lot of them have, you know, they've looked you up on the internet. They've, you know, they know where you're trained. They know all these things about you. But uh, sometimes you got a big sign by the elevator. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I do. But you know, uh, it's funny. I just just this past week, I was in the elevator with a patient. I was gonna do surgery on. I told them good morning with the elevator up with them. Made small talk on oh, the way no. up. Patient did not realize it was me until I walked in the room, and I was like, "Oh, so how was the drive in?" He was like, "Oh, it was pretty good." You know, I was like, "So how was breakfast at whatever?" And he's like, "How do you know where I ate?" I was like, "Well, I saw the bag when you walked in. You we were in the elevator together." You know, like they didn't. They didn't. Oh, you weren't wearing the coat or anything. You were just no, like so normal. And that's another thing. I don't wear a white coat. Um, you know, being oh really primarily surgery. I mean, it's not necessary because I would. I, I think I would. You know, I know I would take it off uh, in between every case. So I think that's a. Another way people can help avoid that is have the the white coat, the context crews, so to speak, for patients. But, you know, my scrubs have my name on them. It says Dr. Jonathan J. Ledet. I think that it is most of the time it's not a malicious thing. It's just like, hey, okay. we are people. If I showed you a pictogram of a bunch of different ethnicities and I'd say, who's the smartest person here when it comes to math? I mean, just stereotypically, you would probably pick the Asian person, right? Yeah. I mean, you're married to an Asian woman, so basically they would say, hey, I need, you know, I have an, uh, an Asian team member. And I tell her, I need you to be a stereotypical Asian and do this calculation for me on X, Y, and Z, you know. So, you know, kind of right. joke about it, things like that. Now, what was the second part of the question? Excuse me. I guess it was kind of like, can you avoid it? I think you answered both at the same time, yep. which is good. Do you ever get discouraged? I guess, the, like you said, I guess people aren't really malicious about it. So there's less of like, I mean, oh my I, gosh, I, I, a black doctor, I'm out of here. I think I've only had it happen uh, twice. I had it happen once in residency with uh, a really old guy. I mean, so question is, you see now, he wanted to see my ID, even though I had it pinned to my what? jacket, my white coat. That, he was like, are you a doctor? It's like, I let me see your ID. You know what I mean? So it's like, ah, whatever. All right. I get it. And then another time I had a patient when I was in Arkansas, a patient was like, I don't like you very much. And I was like, can you tell me why that is? And he said, I can't tell you right now. So anyway, uh, so, so, I mean, you know, you're not going to stomp on all racism. I think that, you know, you treat people with respect, give them their, the dignity they're due, let them know that you are one qualified and capable of doing your job. And two, you're going to do, you're going to treat them just like you would treat uh, anyone else. I always tell people, we treat you like family that we like. That we like. That we like. Did you ever have to fire a patient because of yes. any kind of racial uh, stuff? No. I fired a patient. I've not fired them over race. Generally, if they have, if there's a uh, any kind of race issue, they just won't come back. You know, you, you, okay. know, you can kind of, you, you know, if the visit's going sideways, right. then you've adjusted people that you know this person's not coming back because for whatever reason, sometimes every personality, um, they don't always get along. I, you know, I'm an outgoing person. Uh, I am a loud talker. I am also a close talker. Uh, I also stay yeah. really close to people when I talk to them. So I think that makes some people uncomfortable. Uh, I, 
you know, I try to be as open and inviting, but some people don't like that. Some people want to strictly, you know, they, I try to ask people about their life and how things are going on. And I've had people tell me before I had a lady once tell me, she's like, oh, I don't really want to talk to you about my personal life. Like I asked her what kind of dog she had. Cause I noticed she said she had like a, something on her purse that said dog mom. I was like, oh, what kind of dog has, had, do you have? And she said, oh, well, I don't like talking about my personal life with doctors. And I said, okay, not a problem. So then like, we started talking about the weather and later in the conversation she said, okay, I have a cocker spaniel. <laughs> so I mean, oh. you know, you just got to crack the ice a little bit and the frost that shield. Well, that goes a long way though. Right. Especially like in China, sometimes I have to get on my wife. I'm like, hey, she's the translator. I'll ask them, you know, acti- sometimes just activities of daily living. My shoulder hurts. Okay. Doing what? You know, is it over the head? Is it reaching? Is it using a backhoe? Like, why does it hurt? And then sometimes we'll just ask like, oh, how do your, how does your kid or how's this going? And, and sometimes it's like, it's culturally like kind of inappropriate a little bit to ask certain questions, but I'm like, they're old. They have grandkids. Let me tell you, they're going to be excited to say anything about their grandkids. And sure enough, it breaks that ice for that grumpy person and then diffuses the situation. Exactly. Now I have a question I've never asked and I kind of preference it beforehand if, if I could ask you this question because I didn't want to come off like that's a racist question or whatever. There's a thing called Uncle Tom. If you could explain what that is and have you ever experienced it? How do you do with that? Because there are a lot of professional African-Americans that have come out of the poor and uh, succeeded. So give it, if you could give us a little a background about that and, and have you experienced it? What do you do about it? All right. So uh Uncle Tom. There might be another so, term. So too. Uncle Tom basically is like, you know, this comes from a, um, Uncle Tom's cabin, right? And in Uncle Tom's cabin, there's a black man. He's a slave. His name's Tom. And he gets, like, beat because he refuses to, like, uh, tell the um, the whereabouts of it. Like, you know, they're looking for other slaves and he, and he doesn't and he doesn't reveal where they are. Right. Right. Now. In the racial context, the quote Uncle Tom, it's a pejorative term, right? Uh, it's basically it's like you are giving up uh, your ethnic background or whatever, your traits and practices. Like, you know, when I was growing up, I was frequently called a white boy because I tried in school. Uh, and that's it's like, oh, you're trying to be white. You know, you're talking white. And I'm like, no, actually, I'm just talking Talking. properly as my mother instructed uh so (laughs) i think that you know my mom my mom didn't graduate high school so she said make sure you get an education so when they call you an uncle tom it's like oh you're you know when they use it in that sense they're like oh you're trying to hide the fact that you're black and i don't that you know that never comes up i i um i tell people front and center i'm black i like everyone i don't i try not you know i had a, a, a white man in my as my best man in my wedding whether uh even though i got pushed back from family you know what i mean yeah uncle tom basically it's like uh it's like a, a negative thing so it's like also it's like oh you've given in to the white man you know what i mean and i mean i don't look at it like that i i, I think that you need to i've always prided myself on being able to stand with anyone no matter what their race their creed how smart they are whatever what can someone do because not everybody's going to be as strong as you are and they're like look i went and i went to school i graduated i got a master's i got a phd or whatever i'm like at the top of of my game and you know they might have like a brother that's like not really living up to their potential or something and Mm -hmm. it really affects them maybe it gets them depressed or anything like that any any way to overcome that or ways to handle uh family members that might be like that Man, I think all you can do is encourage them, you know, encourage them to do better for them for themselves. Uh, and I think that 
I think that's the best thing you do. I think that you encourage people to pull them. Like I always tell people, help me help you. You know, help me help. How can I help you help yourself? Right. It's that, that old adage of teaching men to fish, get, um, teach a man to fish versus giving him a fish. If you teach him to right. fish, then basically they know how to fish for life. Whereas if you give them a fish, give them a fish, you're just enabling them. So I think if someone's not living up to their potential, I mean, you know, you can't give her the jealousy. I think if you talk to anyone who is a successful person of any race, there's always jealousy usually within the family or someone um, right. because this person didn't achieve the same level. But you tell them, hey, man, you had the same opportunities I had. But if I can help you, I will. Yeah. Just help me out, man. You got the money. I just need a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> Come on. No, that's not a good way. I think that that uh, enables people. I think if you start enabling people, uh, then you're really going to have a problem with them later, I believe. You know, always once you start giving people money uh, to solve their problems, then they're just going to keep coming back. Not gonna fix it. You know, I was part of a group one time, and the the head honcho there, he said the same thing. He's like, "I got a sister. Oh, she's always short." I start giving her money one time, and not but a month or two later, Back. she was short again. It's like, wait, I just give you five hundred dollars a month, and how are you still short? And so, um, yeah, you just can't. Like you said, you got to find another way to help out your your family or your friends to mm-hmm. help themselves. Right. Okay, cool, cool. Where are you seeing yourself in the next five years? What's what's on the plan? Well, you know. I like that. I really like the job and the institution I'm working for in Oklahoma. You know, I think in the next five years, uh, I want to grow our practice. We are, we recently interviewed another young lady, uh, another dermatologist to join us, a general dermatologist. I would like to grow our practice. I'd like to, uh, you know, do some community outreach. I hope that we're still, you know, trying to advance our specialty and let people and take great care of patients from a, on a personal, um, level. I, I would, you know, hope to, I've been trying to motivate uh, my, my sister to go back to school. I hope that happens. Uh, I hope that, you know, she kind of sees the, the light of day. I have a, a, a younger brother, uh, who's 20, he's 11 years younger than me. So he's 26. And I hope that young man gets himself together in the next couple years. Really, I've been trying to, you know, be a better brother, a better friend to him and text him every day. Cause you know, he's, he's prototypical, uh, millennial, not, not to, uh, be negative on any millennials out there but you know he doesn't basically he doesn't like talking on the phone he likes to he prefers to do everything uh he prefers to do everything like via text message and whatnot so so my professional plan the next five years i'd like to grow our practice i also at some point i would like to get a uh, an mba um, because i don't know that i'm always going to do surgery i think at some point in order to help advance medicine you need to Especially for a particular system, you need to be making like administrative decisions and saying yeah, yes some policy change right and you know things like that. I hope to get an MBA and and see where that takes me. Just kind of have that in my pocket for the time that when it comes and I need to, uh, you know, I feel the urge to do something else, or if I can help in another manner, I can do that. Well, what's good is in a couple of years, all your kids are going to be in school. And so you should have a little bit more time to devote to that. Like right now, I mean, with a new kid, I'm like, golly, I barely have time to do this. I can't imagine like enrolling in the class and trying to figure all of that out. I'm just like, you know, if they're in school, I can study while they're studying and maybe, maybe a little bit easier on the time at, at that point. Right, right. I hope that uh, I'm able to do that. But I, I, I do hear that kids now have so much homework. 
that it's it's just insane. Yeah, it's out of control. They said. Yeah, that's what I heard. Hours. Right, hours and hours. Of yep. I mean, you can't change it. They said there's uh, some schools or experiments where the kids don't get homework. They make somehow, I don't know what they're doing in, in this class to, to semen it. And I guess they just have to study for their test. I mean, that'd be pretty sweet as a parent, I'm guessing, but I don't think that's caught on. It's too ingrained. Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, real quick. Any any advice, any new advice now that you got two kids, a loving wife, any tips on how to manage some, some your time at home better or keep the love alive? <laughs> uh, you know, I think you got you to gotta make time for each other, basically. I mean, I think you have to do that. You have to... You basically have to even you, you have to put it on a schedule, man. Everybody's busy. You have all these things. You know, you try to get the kids in bed. You know, my wife and I, um, you know, try to have work life balance. You can't live. You you want to you want to work so you can live, not live to work. I think um, obviously appreciating that person, um, being able to support them, like do little things. Like my wife went to see uh, CME this weekend, continuing medical education, and I was telling her that basically. She should go get some coffee because she likes having fancy coffee. And I took care of the kids this morning and I put I put them to bed so she could, you know, get some rest and go to bed earlier. So like doing those little things, I think you got to remember to treat them as if, you know, they're brand new. And like, uh, you know, just let them know that you're around for them and you're supporting them. All right, man. Did we forget anything, anything that you want to cover? Any um, farewell tidings? No, man, i just like to say I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, I think uh, I've enjoyed listening to this podcast a lot and uh, just, you know, your interactions and interviewing other doctors. I think that's really good. I think it's it's good to hear a different perspective. You know, you did you did the African-American week. I know you did a female uh, week. I know that you've interviewed people that are, you know, older, that basically started their career when medicine was totally different. Uh, you interviewed you've interviewed different disciplines, man. And I think it's a great show. And I hope I hope your show has a fantastic 2019. And hopefully, you know, yeah, one day you'll get on that Tim Ferriss level or that Joe Rogan. Ooh, that'd be sweet. <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. Let me know what you think. I changed the logo, updated it to honeycomb style. The backgrounds are blurred out like a rehab suite. And then there's all these little icons that illustrates different types of doctor specialties inside there. We got a new Asian EDM style intro. I kind of dig it. Let me know what you think about it though. Also, for the first time, I'm now giving a fifth no needle acupuncture chapter complete with pictures and points and everything that you need for knee pain. That's right, knee pain. I really want to take a second and say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you haven't left a review on your favorite listening app, please go ahead and do that. One thing I've realized, I've been putting out a lot of links all over Instagram, Facebook, this podcast itself. And if you ever change the link or shut the website down, all those links are now gone and dead. So I just want you to know, if you're listening to some of these episodes and I mention a link and it's gone, just head on over to a doctorsperspective.net and you're probably going to find that thing you're looking for on the top menu. Search around and I'm sure you'll find it. All the books you can find there, acupuncture book with no needles, the free chapters you can download, the 360 degree health from exercises, stretches, financial health, what is chiropractic, and the free chapters over there, t-shirts, resources, and we even have a financial support site now. It's just a doctorsperspective.net slash support. There's one-time support. There's monthly support. Go ahead over there and check it out. Something that I'm offering right now with the needless acupuncture, if you buy the book, 
You also get the electric acupuncture pin for free as a bonus. And that electric acupuncture pin helps you not only stimulate the points stronger, but helps you locate the points as well. So that's a huge plus. And then with the uh, Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health book, I'm offering a bonus of a uh, one-hour, one-on-one coaching session to go along with the purchase of that book. Actually, there's three different bonus packages if you head to uh, doctorsperspective.net slash no needles. It's getting close to the end of the year. Are y'all ready for the 2018 top 10? I mean, it's too early right now, but it's going to be here before you know it. That will be available for download later on, just like the 2017 is now. You just heard a great guest implement one thing, make your practice and personal life as best as it can be. We just went hashtag behind the curtain. I hope you will listen and integrate what some of these guests have said. By all means, please share across your social media, write a review, and if you go to the show notes page, you can find all the references for today's guest. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.